Hello and welcome to the All Creation Podcast. My name is Yaira Robinson and I'll be your host today. We are excited to have two religious leaders from Austin, Texas with us, Reverend Dr. Daryl L. Horton, pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church, and Rabbi Neil F. Blumoff, senior rabbi of Congregation Aguda Sachin. Hello. Thank you for having us. So excited that you're here. Thank you. Our topic today is the sabbatical year called Shemitah in the Jewish tradition. But first, Pastor and Rabbi, you are both well-known and respected faith leaders, not only within your own communities, but in the Austin community at large. You have both served as chair of Interfaith Action of Central Texas, which exists to build healthy relationships between the faith communities of the region. And you both serve in a variety of other public service capacities, working toward a common good for all. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Together, you've done some creative things to encourage dialogue and understanding between the two communities you serve. So before we dive into our official topic of conversation, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the adventuresome ways you've partnered together. Well, how much time do we have, Yaira? <laughs> you know, all day. Well, it's been a real pleasure over the years to uh, get to know Reverend Horton and his Mount Zion community. And we, as you said, we first met in the circles of the Interfaith Action of Central Texas world and uh, became good friends and, and conversationalists. And we've then a few years ago decided to see the world together and have conversations. So we developed what we would call Rev, standing for Reverend, and Rav, which is Hebrew for Rabbi. So Rev, Rav, road trips. And we've uh, so far taken a couple. And uh, Reverend Horton, I think, can fill that in for us a little bit. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having us. Um, no, Rabbi and I have, uh, we've made the determination that if the world is going to get to a place when we want to make a difference is that we're going to have to step up and uh, take some responsibility and do some things that may even originally put us out of our comfort zone. And so, like he said, we decided to take a couple of road trips together, which have just been remarkable and have really changed my life and changed perspectives of my life. And so the first trip that we took, we decided to do some looking here in the Southern region of the United States. And so we took a road trip where we got in the car together for the first time, uh, knowing that we would spend hours and hours together. And so we left Austin, Texas, we went to Houston, where we had the opportunity to go to the Holocaust Museum. Uh, from Houston, we went to uh, New Orleans, we drove to Selma, we went to Montgomery, Alabama, we went to, uh, where else did we go? We also went to um, Memphis, Tennessee, yeah, yeah, Little Rock, Arkansas, and we made that circle in about four days. And so again, not only did we go to the Holocaust Museum, but we went to go visit all of those civil rights, those monumental places, again, the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, we also went to uh, the memorial that's there in Montgomery. And so we had an opportunity to visit that place. And, and again, we, it was an opportunity for us to come together because we knew that our communities um, have done some things together in the past. We've been through some challenging moments that are similar, but then we've also had some struggles together here in the United States. And so he and I wanted to, in a sense, I don't think we set out to be role models or anything, but we wanted to better experience each other's lives and each other's thoughts. And so we went to these various places to look at our, our past, to look at our history, and to just communicate amongst ourselves where we are, what we think about it, and how they impact us in hopes that it would help us to better communicate uh, with, the, with the communities that we serve. And so that was a, a mind-blowing opportunity that we had to go to Selma and to cross the bridge together that the Civil Rights Movement crossed. Uh, the Pettus Bridge, and uh, it was just an amazing time. And so we learned so much during that trip that uh, Rabbi had the great idea that usually in this country, we give the northern part of the country a pass, saying that it's not as racist or there weren't as many incidents as there were in the South. So we decided to go north. Um, and I'll let Rabbi share a little bit about that trip that we did the year after that. For sure. And then uh, it was a little bit too far to, to drive. So we got mm -hmm. on a plane and figured... <laughs> long as we'd spend so much time in the car, a shorter plane ride would be all right. And we uh, visited a few places, beginning with New York City. And uh, there's obviously a lot to be seen. And there was a lot to, uh, to uncover. 
because it was not uh, so frontal as say the Legacy Museum in Montgomery has been such a very positive and important example. Uh, for example, we were in the Wall Street area and there was just a little sign that talked about that being a place where humans were, were traded and sold in that very moment, right in the mm -hmm. epicenter of financial America. There are stories certainly from my community about some of my relatives uh, Im freely immigrating to the, this country through Ellis Island, uh, but mm -hmm. you don't really hear much about people who were enslaved, who were brought here against their own free will, which happened really just right around the tip of Manhattan, which there is mm -hmm. no signage, none. Right. Uh, and then there were free Black communities in, let's say, Brooklyn and places that we, that we toured. We went from there to a place called Peekskill. This was a couple of mm -hmm. years ago, so it was uh, an anniversary of what were known as the Peekskill Riots, which again brought African-American and Jewish communities together for economic justice and for, and for uh, 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 discovering and appreciating identities. Uh, and then from there, we drove up to, and that was an interesting and wonderful drive all the way up to, to Boston and seeing how ingrained in, in the very founding of our country both uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the governmental stories and also in the educational uh, foundings of, let's say, some of the universities, especially Harvard and many others, where uh, right. enslaved culture and enslaved uh, transactions were embedded in that very thing. So those are the, that's mm -hmm. the trip that we made a couple of years ago. We have a few things still thinking about it, and God willing, we pray for good health and for mm -hmm. uh, ease of travel. And I think there's a few things I hope that we, uh, that we continue to get to do. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I appreciate hearing how these journeys together have enriched your own individual lives. But you really did a good job of chronicling your thoughts as you went through mm -hmm. a Facebook page so that all the people in your communities and really anyone who wanted <laughs> to plug in could kind of follow along and experience yeah. a little bit through you of what you're experiencing and thinking. So um, that work is so important. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thank and that's you. still an active, active page. So it's called mm -hmm. Rev. Rav road trips mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's there you can look, look for it and, and you can see the chronicling uh, whether the, the, the instant or pop-up interviews that we did or the, the very lugubrious verse that I use <laughs> which you know just for fun but uh but there's a lot on there's there's something for everybody but before we yes. move off that off that topic I'll say one of the things that personally touched me as well is to be able to Another place that, in fact, the three of us are, are connected is the Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And yes. uh, that is, uh, a few years ago, the wonderful uh, community administration, including uh, Dr. David Jensen, helped to mm -hmm. put together a, an Institute for Christian Jewish Dialogue and, and Relationship. Mm -hmm. And Reverend Horton and I had a chance to team teach uh, the story of Exodus together uh, for in part of that program. And that really has meant a lot to me and has opened up important conversations about the Bible, about theology, about how we, not appropriate, but how we actually borrow beautifully from uh, traditions that, that help us understand who we are as well as understand other people. And Reverend Horton and his family have joined us for a Passover Seder. And it's been a really wonderful way of, of connecting on, on an, I don't know if you want to call it an intellectual level, but certainly a theological level. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for remembering that, yes. Well, you know, of course. <laughs> well, may your friendship continue to enrich your lives and our community as a whole. And thank you, Yair. Thank I mean, you. I think it's important to say the, uh, the activism that you have practiced in Austin and elsewhere, and uh, much of the examples that, that you have set have been very inspirational, not only for us, but for so many people as well. So we really appreciate yeah. your leading on uh, topics of environmentalism, on topics of dialogue, conflict resolution, mm -hmm. and uh, we really appreciate you and, and, and the religious dialogues that you, uh, that you have set over the years. Well, thank you. Absolutely. And this is a fun little continuation of some of that, so thanks for being a part. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's move on to our official topic for today, the sabbatical year, or Shemitah, by the way, that was all, that introduction was all I had prepared. So now I got, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, it's all on the pastor. You got you to gotta carry us. <laughs> all right, so in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 
Elements of Shemitah practice are outlined in passages found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, texts that are shared by the Jewish and Christian traditions. In the Jewish tradition, Shemitah practice has historically been centered in the land of Israel because the instructions for observing it are connected with things that people should do when they reside in that promised land. But over the last decade, there has been renewed interest in Shemitah among Jews all over the world. It has been my experience that in our age of climate crisis, people of every faith tradition are looking to their texts and traditions with fresh eyes, seeking holy guidance to navigate what feels like uncharted waters. And for increasing numbers in the Jewish community, Shemitah practice is emerging as a compelling part of our tradition that we can learn from in this moment. But it's part of the Christian tradition too. So I'm excited about this potential for some shared conversations. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 to 11, describe one of the major components of Shemitah practice, which is rest for the land. Quote, for six years, you are to sow your land and to gather in its produce. But in the seventh, you are to let it go and to let it be, that the needy of your people may eat and what remains the wildlife of the field shall eat, end quote. In a way, this mirrors the weekly Sabbath, like for six days we work and on the seventh we rest. Here though, in the practice of Shemitah, the focus is more on the land than on the people. For six years, the land is worked and on the seventh, the land is let go or released. And actually that's what Shemitah means in Hebrew, release. So pastor and rabbi, I'm interested to know what might jump out for you about this part of the Shemitah practice. Do you want to go first? Oh, if I if I go first, we won't stop. I won't stop talking. So I want to make sure that you no. know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, uh, yeah, you were. Thank you for that question. So where my mind goes when I think about this, especially from uh, an African American culture perspective, is that there is a history of um, sharecropping in the stories of African Americans, and so. Um, although I've not, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, participate in that type of vocation, I do understand that we, um, as, a, as an African-American people coming from the times of slavery, that was um, a way that many of um, our people learned to uh, cultivate their own land, to make a living and to do those type of things. So even here in, in the city of Austin, where we are, um, the historic St. John's District Association area is an area that when it was first uh, claimed or first provided to African-Americans, uh, it was the plots were given to those who were sharecroppers. And so it was interesting how we developed those agricultural practices. And um, I believe that to the best as I understand it is that some of those practices would still be done uh, back then where people understood that the land needed to rest so that it would have an opportunity to produce for the next year. And so moving forward into current times, what I would say is that since many uh, people are not sharecroppers or farmers or anything anymore, I think it is kind of transition to the place, especially in the church, where we understand the need for people to have basic needs met. And so for churches that do have enough property, you're now beginning to see churches that are planting gardens and teaching people to be agricultural, to be able to live off the land. Um, again, if I can mention this, the St. John District Association here in Austin, there's actually a church, the Rehoboth Baptist Church, who has taken the primary responsibility that now there's a garden there at St. John where they're actually planting and they have an incredible harvest that comes from that every year, but they're using that to feed the community. They're using that to uh, provide those goods to other churches. And so I think that there is still the idea of uh, where this comes from. But again, just because of how times has changed and you don't have a lot of agricultural people in the church anymore, we don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see it as a common practice, but I do see it in different ways where food is a concern, the climate is a concern. And so how can we feed ourselves? How can we live off the land? And how can we use that to help support other people, um, again, who have food insecurity or other methods like that? Thank you. I love that. Sorry about that. I just started Zoom last week, so I'm still learning. So. <laughs> it's okay. There's a curve. Yeah. No, I think that's a really <laughs> that's a really important point, and uh, and I appreciate you contextualizing it in a particular uh, community and culture and and ways that that resonates. You know, for me, if you're looking at 
uh, Exodus chapter 23, this is after the moment that the children of Israel were able to begin to coalesce as a people. So at this moment, I think that the Torah is telling us that there is a corrective in the book of Gen from the book of Genesis, just like uh, God, or we would say in Hebrew, Hashem, would have offered a particular point of land and a point of perspective in the Garden of Eden. And I think much of this runs up against, you shall be dominion, you shall have dominion over the earth, as it is perhaps imparted to Adam and Eve. Now, I think with a bit of experience, as has been the case in the Hebrew Bible, that there's a bit of a shift. You know, God has learned the, the boundaries and the barriers of Adam and Eve, uh, and let's say Noah and the flood. And now later on with the exodus from Egypt, God is saying, you are not, and you do not have dominion over the earth. Rather, the earth is the Lord's, as it says in Psalms. And you are in fact part of a larger system, a larger ecosystem, a larger rhythm of how this world, your world functions. So rather than us think about it as what can everything, plants, beasts, and everything else do for us as human beings. Here, I think God is saying, recognize a larger perspective. And just like you have begun to practice the spiritual practices of the Sabbath, know too that that carries into every other aspect of your life. So do you have faith in me enough to let the land lie and rest for a year? And I think that that kind of challenge is an incredible challenge. And it's something that I think in every generation, we get to decide how much we're up to that challenge. So very much as Reverend Horton was suggesting that we're providing food and the land is providing food, but we have to understand too that underneath all of that, ultimately God provides for us and that we shouldn't take that uh, partnership or that sense of obligation of the land for granted in our lives. Uh, I love this, what, what both of you have shared here. And it, it does seem to me that, that there's a, a kind of vision that's being cast that God is casting for us of, you know, take, like, let's just erase property lines for a year, take the fences down. Everyone should have enough food to eat, poor, rich, whatever, doesn't matter. Everyone gets the same access to all the food. And that goes the same for wildlife too. Like this isn't just a, a human community that God is concerned about, but it's really just, you know, an ecosystem community that we're a part of. So thank you for that. When we, yeah, when we think of commodifying all that is around us, we really lose a deep spirit, a spirituality and a deep connection, not only to the land or to wildlife, but to really to each other. So to back away from this idea of human dominion, and really think about things as a custodian or think about things as a guardian or thinking about things as remediating, as you said beautifully, Yaira, this idea of rebalancing what is in the world, including us. Well, great. So there's more to Shemitah. So let's move on. Another important component is the release of debts. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses one to two instruct Quote, at the end of seven years, you are to make a release. Now this is the matter of the release. A person shall release every possessor of a loan of their hand, what they have lent to their neighbor. A person is not to oppress their neighbor or kin, for the release of the Lord has been proclaimed. So to me, this is pretty radical. Every seven years, all loans are to be forgiven, all debt wiped clean. It's hard to imagine what our society would look like if we did that. Um, so what are your thoughts about this part of the practice? So let me jump in real quick about that. Is that all right, Reverend Horton? Yeah. Yes, sir. So, you know, you're, a, you're talking about this as a radical practice and the ancient commentators, the ancient exegetes or rabbis on this were kind of flummoxed by all this as well. And they said, well, that will uh, hinder business practices. Who's gonna lend to somebody even in the fifth or the sixth year, when they know that it that they could just wait it out in the seventh year, they get a they get a, a pass. So even embedded in some of the earliest books and the earliest commentaries, like the Talmud, there is a bit of a of a human uh, loophole that's put in uh, that that sort of sets up uh, what I guess you would call 
trusts or other places where you can sort of have something hold. So while things are happening in the world of our own everyday uh, transactions, these are like holding companies, as it were, that that would not be interrupted so uh, commerce could continue. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that that even embedded in the earliest understandings of what the, the Bible is trying to tell us. But I think rather than just say, oh, we fixed it, right? To rather than to say, and I think Reverend Horton's got some good stuff to say about this too, what would it mean? Just like in terms of the land, recognizing that we are just part of the land. And as it says elsewhere in Deuteronomy, that if we mistreat the land, and it's a pretty uh, graphic image, uh, it says, then the land will vomit us up. Well, what if we mistreat the sense of capital? What if we mistreat the sense of supporting ourselves on the backs of the neighbors? How does that happen? And, and what happens to us and our soul and what happens to people and what happens to civilization when that is our primary function? So I think those questions are very important, as important as it is for us to continue to have business as usual, as it were. Yeah, Rabbi, I agree. And, and the perspective where I come from this is that my understanding is that part of why God would command this for us is because debt uh, is a burden that uh, can, can bury one, that can hinder one from living a free life and being able to live as God commands us to live. And so from my perspective and vantage point, I think what we've done is that we have begun to try to figure out how do we get people in a place where they can either never get into debt in the first place so that there's the burden hanging over them or how do we help them to learn to better uh, deal with those practices that are necessary? Uh, if you have to get a loan, if you have to be in debt to someone, how can you manage it in, in a way that it does not become burdensome to the person? And so instead of, uh, you're, I think you're absolutely right, it would be probably totally chaotic to this system that we have, especially in this country of every seven years, everything was washed away. I can only imagine <laughs> what that would look like and how people would take advantage of probably and abuse that system. And so where we come from is how can we help our young people as we bring them up, teach them how to become financially astute so that they understand not to fall into the traps of consumerism as we see it in this country, that you get everything you can, even if it means being in debt the rest of your life. How do you do that? Because that's not normal. And, and many of our young people have grown up watching parents and grandparents who have lived that lifestyle and they thought that being burdened by debt is just natural. That's just the way life is. But God sees for us to be different. And so I think you'll see in a lot of our uh, religious institutions where we'll have classes and training and try to help people to understand. Uh, I kind of think about the land as well as we talk about the tithe or giving back unto the Lord. And so we talk about, I think as Rabbi even mentioned, is that if we are able to bless God with what God provides for us, then God will help to sustain us. It's a faith movement. And so how do we help to put that into practice in our young people so that as they get older, they have better financial practices in place so that they don't have to live under the burden of debt and loans and some of those other things. Now, again, as y'all have said, some loans, some financial burdens are going to be inevitable. Um, and so how do we help to best manage that so that it doesn't become a burden to the person where they can no longer function in the capacity where God would have them to do it? Um, and, and I think it just takes time and us as the church or us in our synagogues, all of us helping to equip people to better deal with those types of things. Um, but, I, but I love your question and I think it would be interesting to see what would happen if society as a whole were to develop a practice like that and just how much of a tailspin it would cause uh, in our culture and in the economic environment around the world to do that. Yeah, I would just, I think you've inspired me a lot, uh, Reverend Horton, you know, and especially in this time uh, that we're in with, with COVID still here and, and really being tested by the supply chain. The idea sure. here is underneath all of this is another question besides theological is how much can you live without or how much can you live with and how yes. much do you expect and what do you surround yourselves with? So there's a whole concept. First of all, there's a concept in Judaism that says one who is in debt is equivalent to one who is dead for precisely that reason that there's too much burden on them and they don't get to enjoy life, that they're maybe worried about running into a creditor or they're running into uh, trying to figure out how to eat for that day or whatever it may be. 
And there's another concept, which you and I have spoken about in different occasions, of getting out of your own way. Uh, mm -hmm. You know this concept, it seems soon, this idea of, of willfully not consuming. So this idea of remediation of debt allows us to begin to ask those more important questions of saying, well, I deserve this, or I work hard, so I get X, Y, and Z, rather than mm -hmm. that, saying, well, can we start, as you talked about the St. John's District, can we live off the land of a particular plot of land that gives us healthy food and not have to, uh, to, to continue the patterns that we've had over time? And how much does that change us, not only in our terms of health and self-sufficiency, but in terms of our relationship to each other? Sure, yeah. Well, thank you both for those perspectives. I do think I, I hear the, the sense of realism that you're both offering about, you know, well, this is the world that we live in and then how can individuals, you know, better navigate some of those systems. Um, and one of the interesting challenges that I think, you know, really studying or thinking about this Shemitah stuff presents is, you know, is there some kind of systemic change that also we might want to think about? Um, you know, so in terms of like loans, like the payday loan industry, for example, should there be policies or regulations against just charging, charging exorbitant, you know, amounts of interest that really can become like crushing debt so quickly that people just can't get out from under on their own um, easily, you know, and are those industries targeting particular communities in particular parts of town? Um, anyway, so that's, that's where some no. of my head just went. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful that you would mention that because it's very true. And, and you actually reminded me of something else is that one of the things that is, is amazing to me is that in, in the Christian community, I've been able to be a part of a group of believers who have come together and said, we as uh, the Christian community should help those who are striving to participate in the economic environment of our country, but not be burdened by it. And so one of the things that I think is a very interesting initiative, which I think fits into this, is how about or how can we as the church gather together financial resources to help those individuals who are small business owners, who are uh, looking to create businesses without having the burden overhanging them from a regular institution where the interest rate is so high that it doesn't make sense or you know, it could be something that they'll never get out from under. And so the plan that they've come up with, which I think is really fascinating, is not only are we able to try to provide zero interest loans to the individual, but as a part of the repayment plan, the reason why you pay the loan back is because we'll use that to invest it to another individual. And so I think part of what Rabbi is saying is that this is a way of um, honoring the resources that God has given to us as the, the, the church or the faith community but then you're also imparting into those who are participating love for their neighbor. If I'm able to participate in this, and then as I succeed, I pour back into and invest in someone else being able to do the same. And so I, I started thinking about that when you mentioned that last comment, that there is a way that even though we may not be able to change the system and have it reboot every seven years, I think there are some things that we can begin to do to set new ways of doing business that benefit people to still, uh, you know, make a living and to still have a successful business. But how do we do it in a fashion where no one has to bear the entire burden of of being underneath those type of debts that they can't get from under? Yeah, that's that's really profound. So, and I think I would say that in a in a system such as ours, uh, the supply tries to meet the demand. So the the initiatives that you're speaking about have been actually present in the Jewish community for a while, we have something called the Hebrew Free Loan Society or the Hebrew Free Loan Association, which does exactly what you're suggesting. And it was something that was brought to, uh, to uh, the folks who were coming through, let's say Ellis Island 100, 150 years ago, who uh, were trying to figure it out, who just had a little money in their pocket and were trying to either doing push carts or whatever, and they would go to their uh, communities uh, throughout wherever they'd come. And, and beginning to get those what we would now call microloans in order to begin to establish themselves. And then with the expectation, as you said, Reverend, to pay it forward. And if that were the case, if that was the expectation, then the payday loan places, Yaira, may or may not survive. And, and I know, and I've thought about this a little bit, so I'm still thinking about it, so I don't have it together yet, but 
you know, we always, and I do myself, talk about the system or the systemic or this or that. The system is just us. You know, what are we willing to do in our communities in order to change that system as opposed to say, we've got to change that system? Well, if, if we begin to implement, Reverend Horton, what you're suggesting and, and consider that to be what is the expectation for people, and any, whether they're young people or just starting out or whatever, then over a generation or two, if we have that kind of patience, then parts of the Shemitah will be actualized in ways that we just take for granted. Yes, I love that. And I love the, the community initiative. And I mean, both examples that you've offered of, of community-led and designed and you know, operationalized um, systems that are really working for the people. So maybe we just need to figure out how to expand that out on a larger scale. We're all going on the road after. We're doing this. Awesome. We're going to get the Shemitah bus and just go from community to community. We're doing it. Okay. There's solar panels on the roof. I was going to say it runs on, you know, ethanol or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> Very good. I love it. All right. So we've kind of talked. I think, Rabbi, you were mentioning a little bit of a piece of, of my next question here earlier. But for communities who are, are actually trying to put you know, some of these Shemitah practices into action, there are understandable fears and tensions. Like if we don't sow or harvest, will there be enough to eat? If the loans I make will go unpaid when they're released, maybe it's best not to make loans. Um, do we have any other you know, thoughts or teachings perspectives on that? You know, we could take this in a pretty profound direction, I think, you know, in terms of certainly what I've encountered uh, is that when people are anxious, they want to feel centered in a certain way. So I don't want to make this about uh, uh, escapism or opioids at all. But what I do want to talk about in terms of food, because food is ubiquitous in our culture for the most part. And certainly at the synagogue, if you come by, we're going to feed you. We're going to feed you every time. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, it's quite a holy thing because over the years, whether people need to eat and come to, to, to eat or people feel that they can be filled up not just physically, but spiritually, that's a very important thing. So to, to begin to scratch that surface and say, we could, do, we could do okay with less, to have a sort of spiritual portion control is very frightening. So I don't think that can just be accomplished on its own. I think with all these other community initiatives and with the talents of many pastors and rabbis and others, that, that this would be something that we, that we help as we would help our families in a way that that maybe we're unconscious in our consumption. So it's very important. And I would agree that if we just kind of pulled the tablecloth out and said, okay, we're doing this, that would be discomfiture to many, many people, including people who would support this. Oh yeah, no, I would agree. I, I was just gonna say, I think as Rabbi mentioned earlier, it would even be a deepening of our faith, um, a faith in relationship one with another that we're going to look after each other but I think even more importantly than that, a deepening of our faith that God will sustain. And I think that's a practice that there's always room for us to help uh, inspire the people that we serve and that we lead to learn to trust God more. Yeah, there's a, and I'm just gonna say, there's a psychological aspect to this, again, which I'm no expert, but people's self-worth is sort of tied up in people's disappointments mm -hmm. or alienation or loneliness. And at least they get to, there's an, I think, again, I'm not talking about weight or anything like that, but eating disorders, I think, are very common. And to mm -hmm. sort of begin to control that a little bit differently, I think is, is very, you know, I don't know, how about you? I binge eat all the time because I'm, when I'm stressed out or whatever. And, and it, it's not that I don't take care of my body. I just, there's things that, that help me feel better. So if I know that there was a year where I couldn't do that, I would need that kind of uh, faith support that Reverend Horton is talking about, because I don't think even a, a centered person who might not be struggling with debt or, or poverty or anything is still gonna have a tremendous trouble with that because we have to mm -hmm. pay attention to the linkage of our uh, psychology and what we do in the world. Sure. Right, thank you. I mean, in, in the text, I think that psychology is kind of is taken into account. You know, there are verses that, that talk about, you know, don't, don't hold back from giving to your neighbor. Everything's gonna be okay. Don't freak out about, this is exactly what the text says. Don't freak out about not planting or sowing in a year. You know, God will provide and make sure that there's enough food. So, you know, there's kind of um, themes of trust, I think, Pastor, as you mentioned, and 
uh, enoughness and you know this whole tension that that we constantly have in our faith traditions about scarcity and abundance and you know how do we navigate that in practical terms I think is a really interesting question but right I, you know I would just say that the, the ancient rabbis really say that this is not Shemitah is not a year issue it's actually more more like a two-year or even three-year issue because if you didn't grow in the seventh year what about the what about the going back to the first year so you're not, you know, you're dealing with the scarcity issue of eating whatever was good in the sixth year in the seventh year, if that makes sense. And then in the first year, you don't have the, the, the surplus that you might have had. So people are worried about this in a much longer and, and uh, the timeline is bigger than we might imagine. Right. And Rabbi, if I could, I almost think about human nature when I begin to think about the Exodus and, and, the, and the manna. I mean, God had to put in place that you need to trust me. And if you get too much, it'll spoil. But human nature is like, okay, God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to overpack anyway. And God's way of dealing with that <laughs> is having it waste. But then he tries to teach them that you get enough. And instead of it spoiling like it would regularly do, it'll last you for the extra day. And so I, that just made me think about human nature is that God can share with us as much as God chooses. But there's a little piece of human nature that says, I kind of trust what you're saying, but just in case. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. I mean, it's one thing to, to say that you, you can enjoy your snack pack if you know that you can still go to Costco. You know what I'm saying? If right. Costco is closed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's a whole nother level of trust. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. So I would love for us to talk about Sabbath time. So as, as mentioned earlier, there's the weekly Sabbath or Shabbat where we work for six days then rest on the seventh. And then we have the cycle of Shemitah, six years of planting, sowing, harvesting. And then on the seventh, the land rests and debts are released. But there's one more cycle here leading to the year of Jubilee. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10 tells us that after seven cycles of Shemitah or 49 years, you are to hallow the year, the 50th year, proclaiming freedom throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee year for you. You are to return each person to their holding, each person to their clan you are to return. So the jubilee year heralds freedom for anyone who has been enslaved, freedom for them and for their children, and a return to their ancestral land. So pastor, I'd like to turn this one over to you. Could you speak some to the significance of the Jubilee year tradition to African-Americans and what uh, significance might it still hold today? Great question. Where, where my mind goes, uh, Yairi, is I think about in this country specifically, one way that uh, the Jubilee is tied to our culture uh, has to do with the Emancipation Proclamation. And so knowing that uh, in 1863, when uh, President Lincoln signed that into law. Uh, it gave freedom to all enslaved people across the country. And of course, in areas like Texas, this really takes on a whole new perspective and a different uh, light because you start thinking about the celebration of Juneteenth or June 19th, which is two years later when enslaved persons in Texas found out officially that they had been uh, freed two years before. And so I would probably say, when I think about Jubilee in the African-American culture and in the church, I don't know that there is so much of an emphasis on uh, the 50th year, or we try to you know, intentionally celebrate that. But I do know that there is a strong tie when it talks about enslaved persons being released, being free, that carries us back to that thought of our ancestors and what they had to endure in this country. And that even after the paperwork was signed, there are still years of suffering that takes place. And I would almost say that uh, based on our culture and how we continue to interpret the move of God throughout those challenges is that there is still sense of, a sense of jubilee that we're still waiting for, that we're still looking forward to. And that would be a release of being able to live in a country free from a lot of the racism and things that we still have to experience today. And again, I know that I'm talking with uh, persons and rabbi and I have those conversations all the time about how we can relate to those issues and when there are anti-Semitic behaviors and different things that we that we witness. And so I would say that there's still a little bit of a hope of looking forward to a sense of a jubilee 
And again, not just in the afterlife where there's the eternal <laughs> jubilee that we receive from God, but again, there's a connection to the time of slavery and being released from that. And then also just hoping uh, that every day that God allows us to move closer to a place of jubilee where we don't have these same concerns uh, in the culture that continue to uh, challenge us today. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Rabbi, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, I, 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 not about that. And I, I think that, that that's really important uh, to speak about. I, I'll just, again, as a rabbi, I can kind of trace some of the connections that have been made regarding, let's say, the book of Leviticus through, through time. Uh, the rabbis of the, of, the, uh, of the Talmud and other places were pretty scrupulous in trying to put time together so it really matches. So, for example, this Hebrew year, 5782, which essentially corresponds to 2021, 2022, because our years start in September, basically. This is a Shemitah year. This is it. We're doing it. We're, if you, God willing, we'll get to Israel before too long, Reverend Horton. And, uh, and you'll see that in much of the country, uh, for the best of the ability, the, the land is fallow. And I have been in Israel for Shemitah times, and you can, kind of, you can really see the difference. And that's really important and a, an amazing connection of, of, you know, a lot of people travel to the Holy Land and want to see the Bible come to life. Well, that is an important and very uh, obvious way of, of that happening. And very tellingly, the rabbis give up on the Jubilee year. They're like, uh, we can't make that calculation. And the Jubilee year has been lost. And that's really interesting because they spend so much time, as you know, well, how old was Abraham? And when did the exodus happen and how long did this happen and, and there's you can go on youtube for years and look at at various hypotheses but the jubilee basically is they're just you know uh, it's impossible to say and i would hate to see that as a political statement which i don't think it is it's rather this is so so radical this is so so hopeful that the the rabbis who are not really in charge of their culture and their land in much of the history of Judaism. They were uh, oppressed minorities in many places, maybe abandoned this idea and to think that maybe it was too utopian in nature. That, that is an idea about this. The idea of uh, a return to Zion, if you will, that was still uh, there and that was certainly an important aspect, but a time when the debts are released and enslaved are free and people can feel a whole heart and all the and neighbors can help neighbors. Uh, maybe it's a it was a challenge too much for for those who were not uh, autonomous or not didn't have agency for themselves. And and it's an interesting idea that maybe some nowadays who would like to recover this hopeful idea can do that kind of calculus to kind of bring it back and say, in X amount of time, that's going to be the jubilee, and that's what we work towards for uh, for restoration of climate environment. Uh, civil, civic, spiritual, economic conversations. And that would be an incredible project for us to uh, truly uh, refashion ourselves in a way to bring about the, uh, the hopes and dreams that you're speaking. Well, I, I can see what you're talking about. I mean, Jubilee would be hugely challenging to actually implement. Um, but I, I love this vision that, that you talk about, Pastor, about you know, the Jubilee is something that, you know, maybe we can just continue to work for, that, that we're continuing to, to wait for, to hope for, um, but yeah, but also to work for, um, you know, a world and a society where people don't suffer every day from racism, where, you know, anti-Semitism really does finally die. Um, and then, you know, this other part that I think if in practical terms can be so challenging to think about implementing is, you know, it's not just releasing all people who have been enslaved, but it's also returning everyone to their land. So you've got like this great reset. So any amount of, you know, huge disproportionate like wealth gain or wealth loss that's happened over the past five decades is going to be reset. Um, so can we think about, do people, you know, have a right to housing? Do people have a right to to earn their own income and farm their own land. Um, you know, what would that look like today? We're not all agriculturalists, but I mean, some, these are some big questions. 
So. Well, even more so, I would say it's, it's you know, there's many conversations about reparations, but this is land reclamation as well. So those of us who are living wherever we're living, you know, would somebody knock on the door and say, hey, uh, sorry, but this is our land. And how willing and how prepared are we to not only uproot ourselves from where our home is, but to discover where our home may have been, even, even if we didn't know. And that may not be uh, inviting to a lot of people. Well, yeah, I, I would especially think, Rabbi, if you, especially if you're talking about um, not just land here, because I think we can think of it in that narrow sense, but you know, what about those who um, are immigrants or those who have no right to land here, but they would actually have to originally go back to a homeland or try to figure out. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be fascinating to try to figure out <laughs> how do you do that? And, you know, how do you justify that when somebody does knock at the door and say, hey, listen, you know, 50 years ago, this is where our family grew up and we're coming back to uh, reclaim that. And if I can put a plug real quick, as I think about this, and I'm sorry to emphasize the St. John area so much, but part of what the city was trying to do now in that St. John area to help with housing is that they have uh, come up with an idea of uh, first right of return uh, as they're trying to redevelop that area. And that's similar to what y'all are talking about is people who have been due to gentrification and due to others who have been pushed out of this place where their family was originally, is there a way that they can redevelop the land but give right of return first access to those who actually grew up in that place? You may not get the same plot, but you have the, the opportunity to return to that homestead place. And so I thought that was a fascinating uh, part of the plan that the city helped to develop and we're still working with to see if that's really feasible. Right, and it brings up those very important questions for all of us about what is home and what constitutes right. uh, it's yeah. a very it's a very complex uh, issue and and i agree and i think it's a uh, you know the memories and it's one of the reasons why even in the jewish tradition as you well know on every passover we talk about the exodus from egypt and that's actually embedded in our daily prayers you know wh why why the emphasis to to recognize where we come from and what perhaps is still lurking out there as yaira suggested if we're not careful mm -hmm. and, and upright in how we try to uh, to live our lives and how we try to uh, empower others uh, with our own to to live a land uh, to live a life of nobility and promise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been super fun for me. One of the things that I love most about studying religion, about practicing religion, is is like living into these questions. I mean, our texts pose some really interesting challenges when we start to think about, you know, especially with the Shemitah tradition, like how would we actually do that? What would that look like on the ground? What does this mean about what, what kind of community God wants for us, God sees for us, and how can we, you know, live more into that kind of vision? Um, and so maybe there aren't any clear answers and maybe Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, but I think wrestling with these questions and especially in community and dialogue um, is really important. So I'm wondering just for closing thoughts here for each of you, is there a message that you hear in this part of our tradition, something that feels urgent or especially important for us today? And I'll say, especially in the context of the environmental crisis um, that we're in, but we also are in a crisis of inequitable wealth distribution right now, um, not just here in the US, but really across the world. Um, so yeah, what's urgent, what's important, what new learnings can we glean from this ancient, ancient teaching that, that is in our traditions? Uh, yeah, I would, I would again just say thank you so much again for letting us to be a part of this today. It's always been a joy to, to share with Rabbi any, any moment that I can. But I would just briefly say what I've been reminded, and I'm so thankful to him for sharing this, is I think about the idea of dominion that God has given to humankind and our responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to the earth and to God is a greater emphasis that we see now in recycling and composting and all of these things that help to regenerate the earth and to help be better stewards um, of the planet that God has given to us. And so I think that's a part of what you're starting to see um, in some faith communities is actually taking responsibility that I'm not just supposed to use this land for all that it can give to me, 
but what responsibility do I have to actually take care of the land and to be a good steward so that it will be available to provide for future generations. And so again, I see things like community gardens and faith communities coming together to collaborate to grow food, to provide food, to give access to everyone. And then also, as we talk about uh, the wealth income gap and just those financial challenges that we have is what role can we play in the faith community to, to honor the challenge and the command that God has given us to not just take care and have dominion with or over this planet, but what can we do to love our neighbor and, and to do a better job? So I think that's the message that we're coming from this. And as Rabbi stated, it's gonna take those who have the courage and the boldness to say, this is something God requires of us. And we may not be able to turn it all around or fix it all in my time of leadership or even in my lifetime, but what can we do to set a foundation so that it moves forward? So that even as Rabbi mentioned, a couple of generations from now, it may become so normal for us to take responsibility for the planet and each other's financial uh, status that we don't even second guess it anymore, but it's the expectation. Sounds like a jubilee to me. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I sit with the uh, juxtaposition that in the book of Deuteronomy, it both says, there shall be no needy and poverty will never disappear. And this idea that we, you know, can be uh, hopefully generate hope from that, from that, from that place. And I really appreciate what Reverend Horton is suggesting in terms of who we are and what our perspective is and how we pursue what we pursue. The, uh, the ability that we have to be able to speak these truths, these penetrating uh, truths to people and to each other. And I think at the same time to not lose sight of the very long and wise human tradition. Maybe it's embodied in indigenous cultures, but I think we can do the best of both worlds. We can recognize the science of how we grow and manufacture and do, but we can also recognize and tap into uh, those who've been doing this much, much longer than science has been doing, and to recognize that there's a, there's a sweet spot there. And, and if we can back away from a winner-take-all mentality and be able to share in this way, maybe we'll get some good guidance to be able to, uh, to care for our neighbor, as Reverend Horton has suggested. So I really appreciate these uh, profound moments to be able to be in conversation. And I thank my teacher, Reverend Horton, and you, Yaira, for your incredible uh, service and stewardship of, of these conversations. And I hope that we're able to, uh, to share more and to learn more as we continue. Oh, thank you both. Take good care. And I look forward to, uh, to more conversations and more partnership opportunities. Thank you.